Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey, Failed Utopians. Well, here we are at the end of December 2021. Can you believe it? What a strange couple of years it has been. Today's episode is short and not sweet, and it's kind of sort of the last episode of Failed Utopia for this year. Next week will be a rebroadcast of last year's holiday special. Most of you probably haven't heard it because, believe it or not, My tiny baby podcast was only one month old this time last year. That's right, we recently passed the one-year anniversary of Failed Utopia. Wow. And I could not have done it without support from all of you. Thank you so much to all of you who listen along, told your friends, enemies, and coworkers about me, and to those of you who have been so generous in helping keep the podcast going financially with your one-time and recurring donations and your purchases from the Failed Utopia merchandise shop. Thank you, thank you, from the bottom of my heart. If the spirit moves you, as always, you can reach the links to support the show and purchase merchandise in the show notes. Everything is there at failedutopia.com. So, until next time, please have a safe and fun end of the year doing whatever it is you do. Stay tuned for next week's holiday special rebroadcast and I look forward to connecting with you all again in 2022. Picture this. About halfway between Hawaii and Australia, a chain of islands with white sand beaches, turquoise blue waters, breathtaking sunsets, palm trees swaying in a tropical breeze, and a culturally rich population of native people fishing the bountiful waters of their homeland as they have for generations. Sounds pretty ideal, right? Maybe even the closest we've ever gotten to an actual utopia. But there's a problem. Actually, there's two problems, and they're really big problems. Geographically part of Micronesia, but an independent country, The Republic of the Marshall Islands lies in the Central Pacific. Its territory is over 97% water and encompasses over 1,000 islets and islands, including 5 islands and 29 coral atolls. The islands support a population of about 60,000 people, mostly native Marshallese. But that may not be the case for much longer. If you've been paying attention, you know the climate is changing, sea levels are rising, and low-lying and island nations are already paying the price. The Marshall Islands are no exception, with increasing frequency and intensity of typhoons and rising waters threatening to consume the entire country. Some of the smaller islets are already underwater, disappearing over just a few years, overtaken by the rising sea. 
When sea level rise reaches one meter, parts of the Majuro Atoll, where over half the country's population lives, will be permanently flooded or at high risk of flooding. Three quarters of the country could be inundated by the end of the century. Storms that are rapidly increasing in frequency already cause destructive flooding, destroy crops with salt as the sea washes over them, inundate sewage systems, threatening disease outbreaks, and increasing drought threatens the crops they rely on as well as their shallow freshwater aquifers. As a warming and acidifying ocean causes declining health of their coral reefs, the population of the fish they rely on for food also declines. Some of the island's inhabitants have already left as they see the writing on the wall. Unfortunately, even if we could stop climate change overnight, which we can't, or if world leaders suddenly started taking decisive action on climate change tomorrow, which they won't, we've already set a chain of events in motion that guarantees sea levels will continue to rise for the foreseeable future. As of now, global sea levels are expected to continue increasing under all emissions scenarios mostly due to glacial melt already underway. But the Marshallese people are resilient, and many of them are not giving up. One Marshallese climate activist received a standing ovation after speaking at the United Nations Climate Summit in 2014. But standing ovations won't do anything about climate change or for the people of the Marshall Islands. So, climate change is threatening this little island paradise. But what if I told you that's not the worst problem they face? The Marshall Islands were first settled by Micronesians who explored the islands three to four thousand years ago. These inhabitants lived according to their own culture and spiritual practice for a long time, but then the islands were colonized by a succession of foreign powers starting around 1500. In the 18th century, the islands were renamed for the English explorer John Marshall when he mapped the islands, something the native people had done with stick charts thousands of years earlier, an incredible early technology that mapped ocean swells and the island's disruption of those patterns, allowing the people to navigate between the islands by canoe. In the 19th century, Germany purchased the islands from Spain, and Japan took the islands from Germany in World War I. In World War II, an Allied invasion replaced Japanese rule of the islands with U.S. occupation. The Marshallese people were forced to assimilate with every regime change, and over the years, their native spiritual practices were replaced with Christianity. Today, the country is nearly 100% Christian. Some people might think that sounds great. I think it's a tragedy. The islanders had a rich spiritual practice that was tied to their ecosystem up until they were colonized and a succession of foreign governments treated the islands and their people like shit. Which brings me to the second problem I mentioned that the Marshallese people face. After the United States took control of the Marshall Islands during World War II, they quickly started putting the islands to use for their own purposes, nuclear testing. In 1946, the U.S. started testing nuclear bombs on Bikini Atoll, after residents were quote-unquote evacuated. 
That's what the U.S. called it. But I can think of a couple of other words to describe the Native people being removed from their home so that the U.S. could nuke it. Words like wrong and bad. The military's PR wing made a very disturbing propaganda video that tried to make their evacuation of Bikini Atoll residents look not only voluntary, but patriotic and godly, and for the good of mankind. Here's a small audio clip from that video. They depend on their own arts and crafts. They are proudly self-sufficient. They are astonishingly intelligent. They are a gentle and lovable people. They have boats, quaint outrigger canoes made of small pieces of strange woods lashed together with fiber. Yes, life is simple and beautiful on Bikini Atoll until today, February 3rd, 1946, when there enters into Bikini Lagoon a fateful thing, a grim, huge symbol of civilization in its most terrifying form. Arriving as Commodore Ben H. Wyatt, United States Navy, with a startling request. Will the people of Bikini abandon their paradise so that the United States can use it for a certain experiment with the fantastic, the incredible thing called the atomic bomb? And after long conferences, it is to King Judah in public meeting that Commodore Wyatt puts the direct question. All right now, James, will you tell them that the United States government now wants to attempt to turn this great destructive force into something good for mankind, and that these experiments here at Bikini are the first step in that direction? Now then, James, they have heard our plan. Will you ask King Judah now to get up and to speak here for his people? We will try to go and everything good and everything in God's hands. Tell him that's fine. Everything being in God's hands, it must be good. If you're interested in seeing that video, it's really something, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In 1952, the U.S. detonated the first-ever thermonuclear bomb, Ivy Mike, or the Mike Shot, on another atoll in the Marshall Islands. In 1954, the massive 15-megaton Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test exposed islanders downwind to deadly nuclear ash. The commander of the military task force responsible for the test and the scientific director of Operation Castle ordered the test to continue as planned even after they were warned that unfavorable atmospheric conditions and changing wind patterns increased the risk of spreading contamination to inhabited islands. The Marshallese health minister later testified, Approximately five hours after the detonation, it began to rain radioactive fallout at Rongelap. Within hours, the atoll was covered with a fine, white, powder-like substance. No one knew it was radioactive fallout. The children played in the snow. They ate it. The people weren't evacuated until days later, and they were never able to go back. 
Due to miscalculation, the Bravo shot was two and a half times larger than expected, and the explosion sent radioactive debris over an area of 7,000 square miles, contaminating Marshall Island natives, U.S. servicemen, and the crew of a Japanese fishing boat, the fifth Lucky Dragon. Castle Bravo was about a thousand times more powerful than the little boy atomic bomb detonated over Hiroshima and the worst radiological disaster in U.S. history. Between 1946 and 1958, the U.S. conducted 67 nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands. They called it the Pacific Proving Grounds. The Marshallese called it home, but some of the islands were so contaminated with radioactivity that they could never go home, and islands like Bikini Atoll remain uninhabitable today. The Republic of the Marshall Islands finally gained its independence from the U.S. in 1979 through the trust territory of the Pacific Islands, but the people of the Marshall Islands still suffer from the nuclear contamination the United States left in its wake. After the Bravo test, U.S. scientists used the disaster as a great opportunity to study the effects of radiation on human subjects. That study was later criticized for being carried out in an unethical manner, for reasons like not obtaining informed consent for the study or telling the Marshallese people what they were doing or what was in the pills they were being given and not having any translators to explain to them why they were sick and what was happening. The exposed Marshallese population suffered from serious health effects like cancers, birth defects, and radiation burns. In the 1980s, a nuclear tribunal trust was established between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands, with the U.S. agreeing to provide hundreds of millions of dollars for medical treatment, resettlement of nuclear refugees, and island rehabilitation. But hardly any of that promised money was ever paid out. By the early 2000s, the program had insufficient funds to pay claims, and the program is basically defunct. Unresolved settlement claims have sat abandoned and gathering dust for decades. But hey, I haven't even told you the worst part. The ticking time bomb. Enoweetok is the atoll made up of 40 small islands where Ivy Mike was detonated in 1952. On one of the little islands that comprises Enoweetok Atoll called Brunet, lies a concrete dome over the ground, over 100 meters across and 18 inches thick. There's no fence around it, no barrier, no guards, not so much as a sign to indicate what lies inside or that it might be best to stay away. The U.S. military calls it the dome. It's descriptive, but I don't think that really covers it. The native people call it the tomb. That seems more fitting. Under the dome is 80,000 cubic meters of radioactive waste and contaminated soil from those dozens of nuclear bomb tests. In the 1970s, when the U.S. was done with the Pacific Proving Grounds, they dumped all the nuclear waste in a hole, covered it up with concrete, and left it there. The nearly 4,000 U.S. servicemen who worked to clean up the site, and I say clean up in air quotes as what they were actually doing is just dumping the nuclear waste in a hole, 
also suffered health effects from working with the hazardous materials, especially plutonium. And the men who were working there weren't told they were working with radioactive waste. They had no idea that they were at a nuclear test site and they wore no protective gear. Some of them walked around picking up loose pieces of plutonium from a failed bomb that hadn't detonated and was instead broken apart in a conventional explosion, leaving plutonium chunks all over Runet Atoll. Today, some of those men are sick or dying from cancer and other illnesses they believe are linked to their time at Enowetok. Government documents that were later declassified show that the government was aware these men were being exposed to the hottest nuclear site on the planet, including, quote, solid plutonium-bearing chunks, end quote. But these workers were not classified as atomic veterans, so they don't have special health care coverage, and the government says their illnesses are not related to their time at the Enowetok site even though they never did a formal study on the health of this group. So thousands of young men unknowingly sacrificed their health to throw this radioactive waste into a hole and cover it with a massive concrete dome. And predictably, that concrete dome isn't keeping it all inside. See, they didn't bother to put anything underneath it. The hole they dumped it in was actually one of the bomb craters that was created by an explosion on the coral atoll. And guess what a coral atoll is? Porous. Yeah, it's coral. So they didn't line the crater with anything. They just dumped the nuclear waste in, covered it up, and there it sits. I mean, to me, it's like this big monument to America's giant fucker. That was Marshall Island's Secretary of Health and Human Services, Jack Niedenthal, talking to ABC News Australia on Foreign Correspondent in 2017. So the dome itself is bad enough, but remember those rising sea levels I was talking about earlier? The thing is, seawater is already inside the dome. As the tide rolls in and out, it carries radioactive isotopes with it, and the ocean sometimes washes over it and through it during storms. Runet's highest point is barely one meter above sea level. A particularly strong typhoon, which seems basically inevitable in the near climate future, has the potential to break the dome completely apart, releasing all of the plutonium and other radioactive material from the crater, causing a nuclear ecological disaster in the Pacific Ocean. The U.S. government has acknowledged that this is a possibility, yet nothing has been done. Why? I have no goddamn idea. It seems to be the opinion of the U.S. government that the contamination of the area around the dome is already so bad that a typhoon breaching the dome completely wouldn't make it that much worse and therefore they don't think it's worth cleaning up. The people of the Marshall Islands desperately want the world to sit up and listen and help them save their country so they don't all become nuclear and climate refugees. And many of them remain hopeful. But so far, it doesn't seem like anyone's been listening.
you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.